Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So I did not introduce myself before. Uh, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and uh, it's my pleasure to be with you this morning as we look now at God's Word. We are in the middle of a series in the book of Isaiah. We really fast-forwarded through the first little bit. We're going to slow down now as we come to chapter 40. There's a transition that happens here. I'll explain it in just a minute, but we're going to be reading from Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52 this morning because they are linked by similar themes. And so if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, you can do that. If you don't, don't worry. It's printed for you in the worship folder that you have, or if you're at home, it'll be on the screen. If you're here, it'll also be on the screen behind me as we read. So let's read together. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double portion for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, and every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are like grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. How beautiful. Upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they shall see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Powerful words. Here's my question this morning. What's got you discouraged? What's got you discouraged? Uh, you know, maybe that's just the question I'm asking myself. I, I'm going on, uh, it, it's, been, it's been a hard week, I'll be honest, a hard couple weeks. There's a lot of people that I know that are grieving. I had to go to the funeral of a, a my, one of my best friends, his 27-year-old son died of COVID this week and had to go to that. And, and others that are losing people and 9-11 and the culmination of all of that, you know, and I'm going like on two, two, two nights of no sleep. So I could, bust, I could just burst out crying at any moment this morning. You just need to know there's nothing wrong. I'm just tired and a little discouraged. But I wonder about you. Are you tired? Are you discouraged? What's got you discouraged? You see, the tone here in Isaiah 40 changes Isaiah has been going along, but you come to chapter 40 and something really changes. The tone of the whole tone of the book begins to change, so much so that scholars call this section, beginning in chapter 40, Second Isaiah. And they debate whether Isaiah, the prophet, is even responsible for it because they say, how could the same person say such different things? He's speaking with two different styles and out of both sides of his mouth. 
But this section opens with these famous words in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So Isaiah 1 through 30 is full of warning and judgment. Isaiah 40 through 66 is full of comfort and hope. And what makes preaching Isaiah, and this part in particular, so hard is that there are some of us here in the room this morning who are comfortable, and the best thing that could happen to us is for us to be disturbed by the threat of God's judgment against sin and pride. We need to be disturbed out of our comfort, but then there are, at the same time, many of us that are disturbed and need to be comforted by the promise of God's mercy. And so how do you preach to both of those people? It's hard. But as we come to this text, this particular passage has a particular aim. And so it will be our goal as well. And he says here, comfort. Bring comfort to my people. Comfort them. Encourage them, right? That's what that word means. Fill them with courage. Ray Ortland said that Christianity is not fundamentally challenged. Fundamentally, it is assurance. And so the person who has truly got a gospel footing, who's truly anchored in the truths of Christianity, the mark of that person is not moral intensity as much as it is just an effervescent joy and peace and quietness about their soul because they are so confident in God's love for them. God wants to comfort. He wants to comfort us in order to make us comforters. That's what this text says. And isn't that what Paul said? Blessed be the God of all comfort who comforts us so that we may be able to comfort others with the comfort by which we are comforted by God. Do you hear all that word so many times? It's a little overwhelming. But that's exactly what the Lord desires to do. And so this morning, we want to just talk about this theme of comfort and ask a couple of questions. First, why do we need it? What is it, what is it that is so, you know, needful about the way this gets laser focused on our, you know, on bringing us comfort? Why do we need it? Secondly, where does it come from? How do you get it? How can you become a person who really is comforted by what God has to say here about himself and what he's doing in the world? And thirdly, if you do, if you do receive comfort, how is it that that comfort you're receiving turns you around and makes you a comforter to other people? So why do you need it and where does it come from and what does it do, this theme of comfort? So let's just walk through this text together. First, by talking about why, why is it that God offers it to us here? Why do we need comfort? If comfort is the essence of faith, then discouragement is the root of all sin. And if discouragement is the root of all sin, then encouragement is the way forward in spiritual things. Most of the time, you make spiritual progress through an experience of being encouraged. Now, Isaiah is explicit here in verses 1 and 2. The good news of God's love and salvation is the answer to the bad news of our iniquity and sin. Look there. There is a moral standard that God's glory demands of all of us. He is our maker. He is our owner. He is the giver of every good thing. And he deserves to be loved with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, with everything. And yet, we too often love lesser things and act against our own best interests to try to maintain control of our lives. The Bible's clear. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And spiritually mature people, they acknowledge their sins. But here's the thing. Here's one of the lessons that we learn. The most spiritually mature among us have no problem acknowledging their sins, but there's another step. They acknowledge their sins, and they have no problem doing that because they're not discouraged by their sins. Philip Yancey, he wrote this. He said, guilt is not a state to cultivate. It's like a mood you slip into for a few days. It should have directional movement, first pointing you backwards to your sin and then forwards towards repentance. When you feel, Timo Strawbridge, who's a friend of ours, used to say, it's, it's actually good to feel guilty when you are guilty. 
right? But guilt is meant to move you along in the spiritual life. But too often we get buried under all the guilt, and that is the real sin. According to Tim Keller, you'll see I quoted him there, the sin underneath every other sin. The real spiritual problem is not the sins that we commit themselves, but the way that we can become discouraged by them. The story is told of Martin Luther wearing out his confessors with hours, sometimes up to six hours a day in the confession booth. He would go and just confess his sins for hours and hours and hours, recounting minuscule sins and unhealthy thoughts until the day he met one wise priest who stopped him, I don't know, some point in the middle of his confessing, and he said, Luther, God is not angry with you. Your problem is that you're angry at God. Luther's problem was not the sins he was confessing, but the sin underneath them, the unbelief. He knew well that his sins were many. He did not yet know that God's mercy was more. And he lived discouraged and deflated by his many sins instead of elated at God's love. And that's the real sin. That's the sin underneath all the other sins. So God's word comes. Verse 1 and 2, comfort Comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. And the words are very specific there. Speak to their hearts, it says. Get, get this word upon their hearts because it's the heart that condemns. And when it does, you get discomforted. You get discouraged. And this is especially the case when you consider that God often refuses to rescue us from the consequences of our sins. Parents discipline their children early in life And good parents often refuse to rescue their kids from the consequences of their disobedience because there's a lesson they need to learn. They need to learn the connection between disobedience and pain so that they can also learn the connection between obedience and happiness. And so David saying in the famous Psalm, Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Think about that. David said, even the times when you come at me, God, that's a comfort to me because more excruciating than the experience of suffering is the agony of sensing no meaning in suffering. And so what scripture does is it re-narrates our suffering using this image. It is the Lord disciplining those he loves. And it also warns us that it's easy to become weary and discouraged when you're being disciplined. To begin to doubt his love for you in the midst of hard trials. But if you know his heart, even the discipline can become a comfort, David says. You can maintain the courage, your courage, and push through And learn the lessons that he means to teach you and and to make you stronger and happier than you were before. And that brings us directly to Isaiah chapter 40. The prophet spent the first 39 chapters warning Judah. Remember, at this time, Judah and Israel have already already suffered the breach. So the the tribes in the north are called Israel and the the two tribes in the south are called called Judah. And Isaiah is is ministering to Judah... And he's telling them if if they did not turn away from their sins, there would be severe consequences. Because Israel in the north had already been conquered, had been carried off into exile by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And Isaiah is coming to Judah, who has survived because they've been, there's been a remnant of faithfulness to the Lord. But he's saying, listen, if you don't heed God's word and obey him, the same thing is going to happen to you. If you don't start listening to God, in pursuing the way that he tells you to go, then the same thing that's going to happen to you. And in fact, we know that it, it did. It would happen 140 years later. 140 years after Isaiah's ministry, 
Isaiah's writing here in 720 BC. Judah was exiled in 586 BC. And so there's about a 130, 140 year gap there. And that is, a, that is a startling thing when you think about what's happening here. Because starting in chapter 40, with these words of comfort, Isaiah goes from talking about how the Assyrians have carried off Israel into exile. He goes from talking about that. He skips right over Judah's exile. He skips right over what God was going to do with the people in the south. And he starts to talk about what God would do on the other side of that to rescue them and to restore them. And it's just stunning. It's stunning when you think about what he's doing. Isaiah is here announcing the mercy of God 140 years ahead of time. So that when it happened, when the Babylonians came and broke through the walls of Jerusalem and killed their loved ones and carried them off as political prisoners into a foreign land, when that happened, they would not grow discouraged and give up their faith, that they could remember back to these words spoken by the prophet 140 years earlier and persevere and come out on the other side with more faith and more love. It's really stunning. This is a word today. Hear me. This is a word today that no matter what happens tomorrow, in the end, God's love is undefeated. It's a word today for us that no matter what happens tomorrow, in the end, God's love is undefeated because it's impossible to know what tomorrow might bring. It's impossible to know, but you can still hear from God today that no matter what happens tomorrow, nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can thwart his purposes in your life. Comfort them, God says. Tell them. Your sins are forgiven. They're paid for ahead of time. Do you, get, do you hear that? I mean, ahead of time. He's saying, look, there's gonna be a day you're gonna mess up royally, but I want you to know I've already taken care of that. I've already prepared for that. Mercy today for whatever sin you might be guilty of tomorrow so that when you have to face the consequences, and you probably will, you can be sobered by it, but not discouraged. Now, the change in the direction of the book in chapter 40 is an amazing disclosure of God's heart. And it's really meant to get us ready for repentance. It's mercy today so that the sin tomorrow can be met, not with discouragement and fear, but with resolve and repentance. God's kindness leads us to repentance. And so here he declares his kindness toward our sin ahead of time. That's what I want you to see. The very next verse says, verse 3 in chapter 40, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, a quick illustration that I've used, uh, it's probably become kind of the lore of our church because I've used it so many times, but it's the, it's the perfect illustration of exactly what Isaiah is saying here. He's saying, look, in light of God's kindness, we should be moving towards repentance. We should be meeting even the consequences of our sins with resolve uh, and repentance, not with discouragement and just cowering in fear. And Isaiah is saying, make a highway for God in the wilderness. I, I've been to Uganda a couple times, two times. And uh, Jonathan and Jamie had a, a ministry in Wales that partnered with a work in Bali. And so you fly, and when you went into, into Uganda, you fly into Kampala, which is the capital city. And then you'd have to wind your way up to the city, Bali. And so the first, the first time I went into the country... Uh, you get out of the capital city and you realize, oh gosh, it's just a windy pothole, you know, dirt road. You only have to go about 100 kilometers, something like that, but it took four and a half, five hours. It's terrible. You've already been on a plane for 36 hours. You're dirty. You're nasty. There's no AC. 
you know, the dust is coming in, you're covered with it, it's just gross, and you're just exhausted by the time that you get there. Well, my second trip to Uganda, uh, I was ready for it. The first time I wasn't, he didn't, Jonathan didn't prepare me for it the first time. I was grumpy and frustrated. The second time I was ready for it, and so we're driving out of Kampala, and I'm geared up for it, and we pull out of Kampala, and we pull onto this, like, four-lane, paved, level, like, superhighway. And I'm like, what is this? Where was this the first time I came here? And the trip that took four hours took like an hour and a half. And we talked to the, 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 the guy that was driving the bus that we were on. And we said, what, what, what is going on? What happened? And he said, oh, the queen is coming for a visit. And this is the queen's highway. The queen of England. This is the queen's highway. We want it to be easy for her to go wherever she wants to go in the country. And that is exactly what Isaiah is saying here. He's saying, look, remove every obstacle. Make it easy for God to go wherever he wants to go in your life. Give him access to every part of you. That's what repentance is. And if you knew God's heart, if you were truly comforted by his love, then that's the way that you would live. But we need comfort so that we can live, not discouraged by our sins, but repenting. The gospel changed Martin Luther. Towards the end of his life, he wrote this. Be a sinner. This is the guy who, remember, spent hours in the confession booth. He wrote at the end of his life, be a sinner and sin boldly. I'm surprised that I didn't get an amen from this crowd, but, right. Be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly. That is a far cry from those six-hour sessions of confession, but he learned not to be deflated by sins, but to become elated by God's love for him in Jesus the second. If we want to live that way too, how does it happen? How is it that we, if, if it's possible, it happened to Luther, how does it happen to us as well? How do you get this comfort? And it comes, we're told here very clearly in the text, from beholding the glory of God, the goodness and the greatness, the greatness and the goodness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We read in verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Now, the problem of exile for Yahweh, and you, and you really see this in chapter 52, and I didn't, we didn't read all of the, the surrounding context there, but if you go back, and if you have a Bible and you want to look at the verses preceding verse 7, which is where we picked up there, there was a problem. The exile, God's people being carted off, being conquered by his enemies and conquered off and, you know, carted off into exile, there was a problem. And the problem was that his name was despised, that his greatness and his goodness were being doubted. Because in the ancient world, if a nation was defeated in battle, the name of their God was bespoiled. And so if God was truly great, then how did the Babylonians win? And if he was truly good, then why did he allow such awful things to happen to his people? And these things hung like questions over the whole world. And the Lord says, I'm not content with leaving those questions unanswered. And if you, if you're discouraged this morning, if you dig down a little bit, you'll probably find that either God's greatness or his goodness is in doubt in some way in your heart. And so these two passages in Isaiah are full of language describing how God will move to make himself known, how he is going to come and to reveal his glory so that everybody on the earth can see and believe in him. And thus the calls here in these verses to behold, if you go down to verse 9, behold your God. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might. Behold, his reward is with him. And so when you come across the word behold, it means that there's something that is so wonderful, that is so unexpected, that is so out of left field but so marvelous that you need to wake up and pay attention because you'll miss it if you're not careful. But if you do see it, if, it, if you see it, it, you'll begin to see everything else differently. 
And I would say to you, friends, if you're discouraged, it's probably because you're not seeing rightly. And you need to take your eyes off of whatever you're looking at, your circumstances, your sin, your kids and the mistakes they're making, whatever it might be. And you need to begin to look at all that peripherally and have God as your focal point. There's a place in Romans 4 where Paul describes Abraham's struggle for faith. He was, as you might imagine, discouraged by Sarah's barrenness. But then it says something happened and he grew strong in his faith as he glorified God. In other words, his faith grew stronger as he saw more and more of God. God began to matter more and more to him. God's word became more real, more defining than his circumstances or his feelings. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3 that we are transformed by beholding God's glory. As we behold his glory that we begin to be changed. And God's glory is his greatness and his goodness side by side. That is his glory. That he is both great and good, not one or the other, side by side. And you see that here in this verse, in in this chapter, verse 10 of chapter 40. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. That's greatness, right? God is inexhaustibly great. He's infinitely strong and able. But then in the very next verse, look what it says. It says, this God who has come with might, ruling with his arm, that same arm, that same God, he will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And that's his goodness. He's inexhaustibly good, infinitely kind and gentle and patient. He is the Lord, my shepherd, not safe, but good. And it's when those two things come together, his might and his mercy, right? It's when those two things come together, that's when the comfort comes. Because if he's only great, but not good, that's not a comfort. Think about that. He's just scary if that's the case. But if he's only good and not great, then that's not a comfort either. What good does it do when the Babylonians have burned your capital city and led you away in chains? But if God has the power to save, And if he also has the heart to save. You tracking with me? If he has the power to save, and if at the same time he also has the heart to save, then in truth there is no reason to ever be discouraged. So where do we see God revealing his greatness and his goodness? Isaiah imagines a future day when a highway in the desert would appear and God would show up in person revealing his glory for all to see. What's that sound like? You know, in the Gospels, of course, they open with John the Baptist saying, quoting from this verse in Isaiah 40 and saying that the day had come as he introduces the people there and us to Jesus Christ. And so both Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 52 are gospel passages. That's what links the two of them together. The use of the word good news. You see it two times in verse 9, chapter 40. You see it also in verse 7 of chapter 52. And for Isaiah, it is an unspecified future event, but for us, we know that the promises made by the prophet here point us to Jesus Christ in both his person and his work. And in both those things, in both his person and his work, we see the greatness and the goodness of God revealed. And there are two summaries, one in chapter 40 and one in chapter 52. And the first points to his person, second points to his work. So let's look at them first. The person of Jesus from Isaiah 49. The gospel summary there you'll see in those verses is very, very simple. Behold your God. What is the gospel? If somebody asks you what's the gospel, here's your answer. Behold your God. That's it. You can distill the gospel down to this single truth. God has come. 
Isn't that good news? Right? I mean, God has showed up. A wilderness, you know, a highway in the wilderness, and here he comes. God has come, and the gospel is Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. He's Emmanuel, God with us in human flesh. And in his person, we see God's greatness. I mean, Jesus is the one who spat on dirt and rubbed the mud on blind eyes, and they were opened. He spoke peace, and the wind and the sea was calm. His voice was so commanding that when the soldiers who had come to arrest him heard it, they fell on the ground like dead men. Such power, such authority. But in his person, we also see God's goodness because he was the one who was also powerfully gentle and kind, provocatively welcoming, gracious, kind-hearted. He came to the defense of the woman caught in adultery. He looked on compassion. He looked with compassion on the crowds following him and put their needs ahead of his own. Do you see in his person, in the person of Jesus, you see the goodness the greatness and the goodness of God, but also in his work. And that's Isaiah 52, 7. So look there in the gospel summary in that verse. Verse 7 is just this. It's a little more expanded. It says, your God reigns. So when somebody asks you sometime, what is the gospel? What's your answer? God reigns. So let's practice. What's the gospel? God reigns. God reigns. That's it. You don't have to say anything more. Now you got to explain that. Right? Because there's a lot there. God reigns. Distill it down again. What is the good news that we celebrate? God is king. What is the good news? God wins. And in Mark, Jesus' first sermon is recorded there, and it echoes the verse in Isaiah 52. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' gospel is the gospel of the kingdom come. The greatness of God sweeping across the earth, overthrowing evil, the power of God present in the world to heal and to transform. Like the river in Ezekiel 47. Did you guys read that this past week in communion Bible reading? Oh, it's like my favorite. I know I say that almost every week, but I really, Isaiah, I mean, that, that image in Ezekiel 47, oh, this river flowing out from the presence of God and it goes down into the sea and when it crashes into the sea, it doesn't become salt water. The sea becomes fresh. And everywhere the river goes, there's life. Trees grow along the riverbank that never wither. They just bear fruit in every season and and that is an image of what the Bible means by the kingdom. It is like a flash flood in the desert where everything that is dead that the water touches springs to life. And that is what Jesus has unleashed upon the world. It's not a future reality we're waiting for. It's already a present reality, Jesus said. The kingdom is at hand. But ultimately we know that that victory That victory was ultimately won through defeat and through sacrifice because the kingdom coming meant the king hanging upon a cross, not sitting upon a throne. And that is the wonder of it. So behold, behold the glory of the gospel of Jesus, that the ultimate display of the love of God and his goodness, Jesus hanging upon the cross, dying for our sins. He redeemed us, paying the price for our sins with his own life, But what we know is as we gaze upon him hanging there, he hung there in triumph. It was his coronation. And therefore, given that mysterious 
part of the gospel, we cultivate humility. I mean, how do you get the comfort that Isaiah is offering? You humble yourself because the work of God always begins in the barren places. I mean, look again. It says, verse 3 of chapter 40, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. In the wilderness. And then it goes on in verse 6, all flesh is like grass. In other words, everything produced by human effort. It might make for a good show for a little while, but eventually it fades. It's God's word that stands. It's God's power. It's God's heart. That's where your comfort has to come from, not your own sufficiency. Every human project fueled by self-sufficiency and pride is doomed to fail. But God works through weakness. And that means that no one is good and so good that they are beyond the need of his grace, but no one is so bad, no one is so failed that they're beyond the reach of his grace. And so let me finish because I need to come to a close quickly here. Lastly, what does, if you get this comfort then, if you really behold God in the person and work of Jesus, his greatness and his goodness, then, then what does it do? What, how does it change you? What is it, what is it, what trajectory does it set you on? And this is ultimately where the text leads us because God, the Lord here is commissioning Isaiah and all of us to a ministry of comfort. And so the text in Isaiah 52 tells us that gospel comfort brings with it supernatural peace and happiness into your life. It stabilizes you. When you behold the greatness and the goodness of God towards you in Jesus, you develop an emotional wealth, a solidity, deep joy and confidence in God that can immunize you against the highs and the lows of changing circumstances so that you won't ride too high when things are going good and you won't sink too low when they're going bad, but that steadfastness that you can develop is what allows you to be with other people and to be for them and not always worrying about yourself or thinking about yourself. It is comfort. It's that comfort that can make you a comforter. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. God comforts us so that when we get that comfort from him, we can comfort one another. In other words, God has designed that we experience the comfort that Isaiah is talking about here that he's offering. He's designed it that we experience it through one another as we come alongside of one another as an encouraging, hopeful, positive presence through all the highs and lows of life. Remember the word, the word here is parakaleo. It's translated in the Greek, in the Septuagint that way, which in Greek means to be alongside, but with words. Kaleo is the verb to speak, and so you comfort with presence and with words. Not words without presence. The word became flesh. God didn't just put words into the mouths of the prophets. He ultimately put on flesh and came into the world in Jesus Christ. So gospel comfort among us, it has to be incarnated as well. It gets passed from person to person as the word becomes flesh in the person speaking the words. So not just words, not words without presence, but also not presence, not presence without words. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Isn't that so true? Do you have a friend like that? Do you have a friend that just gushes, encouraging, positive, hopeful things that just fill your soul with joy and hope? How beautiful are those feet? As gospel friends, we are meant to beautify one another's lives with gospel words. Now, let me say one last thing as we close. In both chapter 40 and verse nine, and chapter 52 and verse seven, Isaiah calls us to go up on the mountain <laughs> where everybody can hear and proclaim as loudly as we can the good news of God's coming in Jesus and his coming again. So listen again. He says, get up on the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Publish peace, he says. Bring, publish salvation. Bring the good news. Say it. Lift up your voice. Break forth into singing. We see all of these admonitions there. So Isaiah is commissioning us, all of us, to a ministry of gospel proclamation, gospel proclamation publication. 
There's so much bad news. Isn't there? All day, every day, it feels like bad news, but we are good news people. And more now than ever, the world needs some good news. And God means for you and for me, not just me, you and me, all of us, to be the herald of his good news for the world. And if you've been comforted by it, to comfort others with it, to stand in the middle of whatever crisis the world is experiencing and tell the one who's come and is coming to make all of the sadness and all of the heartache come untrue. But here's my question. Do you find that impulse in yourself? Do you live with that impulse? That's a question you should wrestle with. Do you live with an impulse to get up on a high mountain and yell as loud as you can? The same impulse where we go and we fill football stadiums and yell as loud as we can. Not me. I'm done with that, by the way. My repentance is going to be glorious in the next three to five years. Do you have that impulse in yourself? You do it by being a friend, by offering presence and words to the people that are the closest to you, but he also means for you and for every one of us. Do you see the image of herald? Do you see that word? How often it's repeated? Ponder the image. I would, that's your homework today. Go home and ponder. What, he, what does he mean? He's, he calls you a herald, and a herald is a person who goes before the king to announce his coming. You know, in the stories, the guys that... You know, and then, and then somebody's there with a scroll and they announce it. Hear ye, hear ye. That's a herald. So friends, listen, get up on a high mountain somewhere. Lift up your voice. Strain your vocal cords to proclaim as loudly as you can that God is great and he is good. And Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners and he is mighty to save and his kingdom is the hope of the world. Just as the psalmist said, Begin my tongue, some heavenly, this is not the psalmist, the hymnist, the hymn, a hymn, an old hymn says this, begin my tongue, some heavenly theme, and speak some boundless thing, the mighty works, the mightier name of our eternal king. Let's pray together, and then let's declare him with one another. So Father, thank you for these words of comfort. And so as we come now to the end, I pray that your spirit, there would be a ministry of your spirit to us in the room this morning, that there are so many of us I know that are struggling with sadness, we're struggling with loss, we're struggling with discouragement and with grief, and I thank you for the privilege of being able to just meet with you at whatever place that is, whatever, whatever word we would use to describe the way we came into the room this morning, that that you are sufficient to meet us in that place. That is the comfort that you say you don't have to bring, you don't have to... You don't have to dress yourself up. You don't have to do it all right. You don't have to say it all right. You can just come and be real however you are in my presence. And I pray that as we experience the ministry of your spirit in that place, that the result would be that it would put a fire in us to find the nearest mountain, Iron Mountain in Lake Wales, I guess, or wherever it would be, to find the nearest mountain, to find some place where we could climb up and declare as loudly as we can of the gospel grace and comfort that we found in Jesus. I pray that you make that true of me, that that impulse would be in me and also in my friends, that you would transform us into heralds of good news because we live in a world that so desperately needs to hear. And so even as we sing this morning of the transformation that we've experienced, as we declare the way we're coming out of, this, this, is a, this song's a movement of repentance and faith, And as we declare it, make it true. Make the words that we sing true of us in our hearts, we pray. And we pray all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. If you're here and your faith is not in the Lord Jesus Christ, come to him. His arms are open wide. It doesn't matter how badly you think you might have failed or how badly you might have sinned. His arms are nailed open wide on the cross for you. But if you're here and you've been walking with him for a long time, the invitation is yours as well. Come to him. His arms are open wide. His heart is tender towards you. He will embrace you and love you and comfort you. But then once he's healed your heart, he will turn you around and he will send you. And that's what we, that's what we do here at the end of our service. We remember that we are those who have been gathered to be in the presence of the Lord, to be comforted uh, away from our own discouragement so that he might send us into the world, into a lost and dying world that so desperately needs to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And so receive this benediction, which is the promise that as he sends you now, he doesn't send you away from himself to go do it on your own. Part of the comfort he gives you is he says, I've embraced you and now I'll walk with you as I send you into the world. And so receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go up on a high mountain. Go in his peace.